Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Patients with neuromuscular disorders are at high risk for respiratory failure and other complications, including autonomic dysfunction and infection. These patients often require aggressive monitoring and treatment in an ICU setting. In today's podcast episode, we will discuss the management of acute neuromuscular disorders in the ICU. We will focus on the Guillain-Barre syndrome and myasthenia gravis. Acquired neuromuscular weakness due to critical illness will be a topic of a future podcast episode, and we will not discuss this topic today. Our guest is Dr. Cameron Athar. Dr. Athar is trained in critical care medicine and neurocritical care. He's a practicing neurointensivist at the Farber Institute of Neuroscience in Philadelphia. Dr. Athar is an associate professor of medicine and neurological surgery at the Jefferson School of Medicine in Philadelphia. He has published extensively in the field and is an excellent clinician and clinical educator and a dear friend. Cameron, welcome back to Critical Matters. Uh, Thank you, Sergio. Uh, Thanks for your kind introduction, and thanks for having me. Uh, Delighted to be here. So we talked about this topic several years ago, and we we felt it was always good to do a refresh, and uh, we'll see what's new, what's not. But um, like I mentioned in the introduction, uh, acquired neuromuscular weakness due to critical illness is something that obviously is very prevalent in the ICU. That will be a topic of a future podcast. But acute neuromuscular weakness leading to admission to the ICU, something also that we should all be familiar with uh, as intensivists and working in the ICU. Could you just tell us as a starting point, maybe when you see somebody present to the ICU or to the hospital with acute neuromuscular weakness, what's your broad differential diagnosis and what are you thinking of? Yes, yeah. So patients uh, presenting with acute neuromuscular weakness, the differential diagnosis is fairly broad and extensive. And, you know, um, it can be from conditions that can involve the spinal cord, some uh, some myelopathies, uh, also conditions that, that, that can affect the anterior horn cells of the spinal cord, spinal nerve roots, uh, peripheral nerves, neuromuscular junction, and muscles. So, you know, so just to kind of like go through the differential in terms of myelopathies, we're talking about inflammatory or infectious conditions of the of the spinal cord. So transverse or acute transverse myelitis is always in the differential uh, compression of the spinal cord uh, from extrinsic lesions um, that cause uh, that cause a compressive myelopathy. Cord infarctions uh, should be in the differential. In terms of uh, uh, conditions that affect affect the anterior horn cells, uh, they typically cause an acute flaccid myelitis and uh, some of the infections. Uh, uh, that uh, can do that include breast myelitis, poliomyelitis, well known historically, you know, an important uh, uh, epidemiological disease, uh, some enterovirus infections, and also motor neuron disease, including uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, can um, sometimes the acute uh, presentation can be acute when patients have a, a, decomp- a decompensation um, uh, secondary to uh, ALS. <clears throat> 
In addition, uh, nerve root pathologies, uh, typically these are infections uh, that cause uh, nerve root inflammation, and also uh, uh, structural abnormalities that can compress nerve roots can also present with uh, uh, weakness, uh, uh, neuromuscular weakness. We should always, of course, keep in mind uh, peripheral neuropathies, uh, especially acute polyneuropathies. Uh, the most common of which is Guillain-Barre syndrome, which we're going to talk about in more detail later in the podcast. Uh, other conditions that can cause acute polyneuropathies should always be in the differential. These include uh, toxins such as uh, certain drugs, alcohol, vitamin B6 deficiency, uh, arsenic, lead poisoning, of course, uh, organophosphate poisoning, um, and uh, certain metabolic and electrolyte abnormalities, uh, including um, hypothyroidism and uh, porphyrias. Uh, in addition, of course, uh, critical illness, uh, uh, polyneuropathy, uh, Sergio, you mentioned earlier, uh, would be the differential too, but that's uh, a talk for another podcast. Uh, then neuromuscular junction problems. Uh, these The, the prototype of, uh, for which is myasthenia gravis. Uh, other neuromuscular disorders, uh, junction disorders, include uh, Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome, um, uh, certain neurotoxins that can affect neuromuscular junction transmission, including botulinum toxin, uh, tetanus, uh, tick uh, paralysis, and certain types of snake bites. And of course, or organophosphate intoxication, certain types can affect neuromuscular junction transmission as well. And then of course, uh, we should always keep in mind um, myopathies, uh, which can be from a variety of causes, metabolic, electrolyte abnormalities, especially um, uh, hypokalemic periodic paralysis, uh, which has a number of uh, various subtypes. Uh, of course, drug induced toxic myopathies and uh, critical illness myopathy should always be considered. And to sort of, you know, um, round off our differential uh, uh, conversion or functional disorders uh, are always in the picture. In addition, to all these uh, conditions that I mentioned, always keep in mind brainstem pathologies uh, that can also present with neuromuscular weakness, and these can range from uh, brainstem infarctions to inflammatory or infectious conditions of the brainstem, uh, and neuroimaging um, as well as uh, uh, spinal fluid examination can be very helpful in differentiating uh, uh, these brainstem pathologies uh, from other causes of neuromuscular weakness. <clears throat> So certainly a very broad differential, like you said, and uh, <clears throat> as intensivist, obviously, you want to narrow down the diagnosis, understand who needs to come to the ICU, and then if we can make a specific diagnosis, obviously talk about specific treatments. So what would be your initial workup or diagnostic tools that would be helpful? You mentioned some of them. Just as you're uh, approaching these patients from a broad perspective and trying to get into a more narrow uh, categorization of the disease. Definitely, definitely, yeah. You know, so uh, workup for these patients would start with uh, a, very, a detailed clinical history, uh, the type of uh, motor symptoms, uh, sensory symptoms that they have, any cranial nerve abnormalities. Uh, essentially, the goal is to localize the lesion. Uh, so a detailed clinical history along with uh, a focused, uh, but still uh, uh, more detailed, focused but concise neurological examination uh, is, is, is a starting point. It's a very good starting point. And that can be supplemented by uh, diagnostic investigations that typically include performing uh, a lumbar puncture, 
uh, and electrophysiologic testing such as uh, EMG nerve conduction studies and in the appropriate uh, clinical setting when there is a clinical indication, uh, repetitive nerve stimulation or single fiber EMG can be helpful uh, in certain cases uh, when you suspect, um, especially when you suspect myasthenia gravis or the Miller-Fisher variant of, of Guillain-Barre syndrome, serologic testing um, can be very helpful. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, you know, uh, if you, you know, are concerned about structural abnormalities uh, in the CNS or the spinal cord, imaging of the neural axis, uh, including an MRI of the brain or spinal cord, can help us in, uh, in uh, delineating uh, or differentiating these different uh, types of um, neuromuscular disorders. <clears throat> Perfect. Now, in terms of uh, making decisions of triage, in general terms, and we're going to jump into Guillain-Barre in a second, uh, Cameron, but what are some of the reasons that patients with acute neuromuscular disease might be admitted to the ICU, and what are some of the main areas uh, requiring attention from part of the intensivist? Yeah, so and that's a very good question. That's you know something that typically in the ICU we would uh, we would be called upon to assess patients or evaluate patients for, and then we would be required to obviously take care of these patients. So patients who are uh, at risk for uh, respiratory failure uh, or have or impending respiratory failure. So these are patients who have uh, rapidly progressive weakness in the extremities, uh, which may progress to involve their respiratory muscles. Um, these are the patients that we would be concerned about. Patients who have significant um, bulbar dysfunction because these patients would be at very high risk for aspiration. They would have impaired cough reflex, inability to clear the secretions. And again, because of the high risk for aspiration, they are uh, uh, at very high risk for developing respiratory failure. And of course, uh, uh, certain conditions, especially Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, a lot of these patients, uh, significant subset of these patients uh, with Guillain-Barre can have uh, dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system that can result in hemodynamic instability as well as um, uh, cardiac dysrhythmias and that would require monitoring very close monitoring in the ICU. Excellent so let's talk now about Guillain-Barre syndrome and maybe we can start by uh, if you could share a little bit of the epidemiology incidence and the pathophysiology uh, as a as a beginning. Uh, sure yeah so Guillain-Barre syndrome is, is really the most common cause of acute flaccid paralysis. And if you look at the global annual incidence, it's about, it's, it's about one to two or 100,000 uh, person years. It is slightly more common in males than in females. Uh, and the incidence uh, increases with age, although all age groups um, have been affected. You know, it has been described in all age groups. In terms of the pathophysiology, um, it's thought that it is uh, caused by an Variant immune response to an infectious uh, agent. And um, um, a lot of these patients will report some sort of a preceding infectious illness in the weeks prior to the onset of uh, symptoms of uh, GBS. Um, and what happens is that, that this infection then induces antibodies, which are then directed against uh, specific gangliosides or glycolipid components of the peripheral nerves. Uh, and this is uh, due to molecular mimicry between these components. Uh, and uh, this leads to complement activation, uh, inf infiltration of lymphocytes, uh, macrophage infiltration activation, and ultimately, and this is happening in the peripheral nerves and nerve roots, and ultimately they're stripping of the myelin sheath, um, and if more severe, uh, exonal injury can happen. 
This leads to obviously inability of the nerves to conduct nerve impulses, um, and there's conduction block, and uh, due to that, uh, ultimately the muscles become flaccid. Uh, so you have this acute flaccid paralysis. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, you know infections that have been implicated, uh, Campylobacter jejuni infection is the most commonly identified uh, pr uh, precipitant or trigger uh, for Guillain-Barré syndrome. However, other infections that have been implicated, um, such as cytomegalovirus, Epstein-Barr virus, HIV, uh, uh, Zika virus, and more recently, uh, cases of GBS have been reported in association with uh, uh, the COVID-19 infection or SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus. <clears throat> And there is epidemiological data suggesting that the incidence of Guillain-Barré syndrome actually increases during certain infectious outbreaks, uh, again, sort of, uh, you know, uh, supporting the post-infectious antibody-mediated uh, uh, damage or, uh, to, the, to the peripheral nerves and nerve roots. Uh, during the recent Zika virus epidemic, actually, um, there were some uh, there were, uh, uh, reports of increased incidence of uh, GBS in association with, uh, with the Zika virus. And also, there's some emerging data that um, is, is associated in the, the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic with an increased incidence or a number of cases of uh, patients diagnosed with Guillain-Barré syndrome. So these are the most common sort of like uh, uh, triggers. Uh, vaccines have been implicated. Uh, the first reports are back in the 70s when there was some association described with the swine influenza uh, vaccine. Uh, however, only two studies have actually shown some association of um, uh, Guillain-Barré uh, with the flu vaccine. Uh, no other vaccines have ever been implicated um, uh, um, in terms of uh, associated with uh, being associated with uh, GBS. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, and more recently, uh, immunobiological agents um, have been uh, also associated, uh, have also been associated, um, uh, you know, uh, um, there has been association described with immunobiological agents use uh, and GBS, uh, including especially the immune checkpoint inhibitors and the TNF uh, tumor necrosis factor antagonists. So those are some of the you know um, common um, uh, triggers or precipitants or, or uh, clinical um, associations for Guillain-Barré syndrome. And I think from a practical perspective as clinicians, uh, recognizing these triggers in the history might be useful for diagnostic purposes. But like you said, I mean, there, there's really little you can do to, to, to prevent it and, moving, and, 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 and anticipate them. But it's a good diagnostic um, clue to maybe what's going on in terms of, uh, in addition with other things that we'll talk. Cameron, I wanted to ask you about the different types of Guillain-Barre. I mean, historically, I mean, uh, I know that there's been at least two very predominant and maybe a third type, the acute inflammatory demyelinating polyradicular neuropathy, ADIP, and the acute motor axonal neuropathy. Anything that, that you want to comment on that? Yeah, so, you know, Guillain-Barre syndrome is, is a very heterogeneous condition, and a number of variants have been described. Uh, the clinical variants are obviously based on their clinical history presentation, and then the, um, uh, and, the uh, and, and then variants have been described based on it electrophysiologic testing, the most common of which is the acute inflammatory um, demyelinating polyradicular neuropathy. Uh, that's the most common variant. And in the U.S. and Europe, it accounts for about 85 to 90 percent of the cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome. 
The other variants that have been described include, include the exonal neuropathies, and, uh, and there are two uh, subtypes of the exonal neuropathies, the acute motor exonal neuropathy and the acute motor sensory exonal neuropathy. And they account for about 5 to 10% of the cases in, in, in the U.S. and Europe. Uh, they are seen uh, somewhat more commonly in uh, China, Japan, and, uh, and Latin America. In case of acute motor exonal neuropathy, uh, obviously, as the name implies, uh, it involves purely the motor nerves, uh, and um, and there is an association with uh, Campylobacter inf infection, especially. And in these case, in this case, especially, the deep tendon reflexes may be preserved. So that's one sort of uh, uh, um, difference compared to other the more classic type of uh, um, GBS, which is the AITP. Uh, and of course, um, acute motor sensory exonal neuropathy, as the name implies, uh, involves both motor and sensory uh, components uh, of the nervous system. <clears throat> uh, Miller-Fisher syndrome uh, is a variant of GBS uh, that uh, the classic triad is that they have ophthalmoplegia, ataxia, and areflexia. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, about 10% of the cases in U.S. and Europe um, uh, are um, uh, of GBS are the, of the Miller-Fisher variant, more common in Asia, and there's a very strong association with GQ1B antibody, presence of that antibody in the serum, and it's seen in about 85 to 90% of the patients. Uh, and about 15% of these patients with the Miller-Fisher, uh, who have Miller-Fisher syndrome, uh, they have like an overlapping syndrome where they have also features of uh, the classic sensory motor uh, um, uh, neuropathy that we typically see ascending uh, motor and sensory impairment. Um, uh, so about 15% uh, of these patients will overlap with, with that particular uh, clinical variant as well. <clears throat> Perfect. In terms of clinical presentation, before we talk about um, how these patients usually present and the diagnosis, uh, could you go over the British Medical Research Council scale for muscle strength? I think it's always important, right? that we talk the same language when we're, when we're evaluating these neurological patients. Yeah, so the Medical Research Council, you know, uh, uh, scale, essentially it's used to grade the power of your um, uh, skeletal muscles and uh, and you assign a score based on your uh, exam, and the score can range from 0 to 5, 0 being no contraction and 5 being normal strength or normal power. Uh, so a score of 1 or grade of 1 is where you have flicker uh, contraction or very trace contraction, uh, score of 2 or grade two is where you have some movement uh, along the plane of the bed, um, so active movement with gravity eliminated. Um, grade three is where you have active movement against gravity. Uh, grade four is you have active movement against gravity as well as against resistance. And then grade five is you have normal strength. So, so it's a useful tool. And again, you know, like you said, it's important to uh, describe motor strength using uh, a scale, and especially this scale, which has been validated, so that you know all clinicians are kind of like talking the same language, and and you know, and we're able to communicate uh, more effectively with each other. What would be the clinical presentation of a typical GBS patient? Uh, yes, yes. So the classic. Uh, uh, clinical variant uh, or type is the uh, sensory motor form, where patients will typically present with progressive weakness uh, of the muscles, so motor weakness that starts in the legs uh, and then progresses to involve the arms uh, and the cranial muscles and can also, of course, in involve the respiratory muscles as well. 
this can often be accompanied by uh, paresthesias or sensory impairment, again, progressing in an ascending fashion. Um, and deep tendon reflexes are typically absent or significantly depressed in these patients. Um, and uh, usually this patient will present within a few days to a week after the uh, onset of symptoms. Uh, patients can also have uh, dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system, resulting in hemodynamic instability as well as cardiac arrhythmias. And this is this can be seen as much as many as high as up to seventy percent of the cases. Um, and uh, and it's uh, it's actually a major contributor to mortality in these patients. The uh, dysautonomia. In addition to, uh, in addition, about 20% of the patients, uh, you know, can have pretty significant or profound respiratory muscle weakness that results in, you know, and then, like we talked about earlier, needing uh, admission to the ICU, and they will require some form of uh, mechanical ventilation. Um, so this is like the classic sensory motor form. Uh, the uh, the disease progression can be fairly rapid, which is what we call the progressive. Uh, phase and uh, most patients will reach maximum disability within like two weeks um, and almost all by four weeks and uh, and after this sort of like this initial progressive phase this patients will then enter um, uh, more like a plateau phase which can last uh, from anywhere from days to weeks to months uh, followed by recovery um, so that's kind of like the typical, you know, sort of uh, progression of uh, symptoms. Um, and uh, another symptom that's frequently seen in these patients is pain, which can be muscular, it can be um, uh, neuropathic, it can be nerve root or radicular pain, So, and it can be fairly debilitating for patients. Um, so this is the classic sensory motor type. Other variants that have been described include the pure motor, where the symptoms obviously are um, just weakness, uh, pure sensory, which is quite rare, and of course, the Miller-Fisher variant uh, that, I, that we uh, talked about earlier, uh, which overlaps with the classic sensory motor uh, variant in about 15% of the cases. Yeah. And I think that that the monophasic course that you describe of how it peaks at two weeks and mostly four weeks is also important because something that peaks in less than 24 hours or becomes very severe is less likely to be Guillain-Barre. And on the other hand, something that continues to worsen um, for more than four weeks is also going to be less likely to be Guillain-Barre. And this would be some of the clues that maybe we have the wrong diagnosis. Correct. That that's an excellent point, and and that's something we always pay attention to when we are taking a, a history and you know evaluating these patients uh, for how uh, rapidly or uh, their symptoms have progressed. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in terms of uh, a diagnosis, my understanding is that the diagnosis is truly clinical, and uh, what what you mentioned, obviously, in terms of the pr the presentation, and um, in addition to that. Um, there are maybe some diagnostic tests that we could use to enhance our diagnosis. Can you comment on those? Yeah, yeah. So exactly. I mean, the diagnosis uh, of Guillain-Barre syndrome is clinical, uh, and 
and you know it can be supported by ancillary investigations uh, such as uh, uh, examination of CSF, so a lumbar puncture, uh, as well as EMG nerve conduction studies. Uh, so, but uh, but yeah, I, I agree um, uh, that the diagnosis primarily is is a clinical diagnosis, um, and there are National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke criteria uh, for for diagnosis, and you know there are certain features that are required for diagnosis. You know, I'm not going to go into details, but uh, but but the, you know, but that's 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 the that's the important uh, point uh, in terms of uh, uh, spinal fluid examination. Uh, a classic uh, finding in these patients is the combination of an elevated CSF protein level and a normal uh, CSF cell count, what we call uh, albuminocytological dissociation. Um, however, you know, we should keep in mind that in about 50, up to up to 50% of the patients, uh, the protein levels may be normal in the first uh, uh, week or so. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> And then even after that, in the second week, up to anywhere from 10 to 30% of the patients may have normal uh, protein levels. So a normal protein level does not necessarily exclude the diagnosis of uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome. Uh, in terms of cell counts, uh, most cases, the cell counts are less than five. Okay, uh, there is a Mass General Hospital case series of um, more than 100 patients where they looked at uh, who had diagnosed uh, uh, GBS, where they looked at uh, protein levels and cell counts, and what they found was that uh, as many as 90% of the patients in their case series had a cell count of less than five. However, if you do find uh, significant pleocytosis, uh, especially if the cell count is more than 50, then you have to think of other potential etiologies, especially you have to rule out some sort of an underlying infectious or inflammatory process. Uh, even, uh, you know, mild pleocytosis, any, you know, if the cell count is between 10 to 50, uh, you should still keep uh, keep your uh, differential um, uh, somewhat broad and sh you should look for, you know, uh, inflammatory or infectious uh, causes um, uh, that you don't want to miss. <clears throat> In, in terms of other diagnostic tests, is there any value in serology and antibodies? You did mention that Emilia Fisher variant, there are some associated uh, antibodies, but is there any value in other forms? Uh, no, really. Uh, Miller-Fisher uh, syndrome or variant of GBS, the only one where you know there's a strong association with you know GQ, GQ1B antibodies. There are other antibodies that have been described, and some of them are you know, uh, um, uh, but we typically uh, don't order them routinely, uh, and because. Uh, you know, if you look at the guidelines and recommendations, we don't wait for serologic testing to come back. If we suspect it clinically, we start treatment. So it may, you know, even GQ1B GQ antibody may help us later on, you know, sort of um, uh, in, in uh, confirming our diagnosis um, uh, uh, somewhat, but uh, would not really ma make a difference in terms of, uh, you know, initiating treatment. Um, um, going back to just the, you know, um, EMG nerve conduction studies can also be uh, performed, and uh, you know, uh, and they can be useful 
in confirming a diagnosis and also help in prognosis because they can help us delineate what uh, variant of GBS we're dealing with. Is it a demyelinating neuropathy or is it an exonal neuropathy? Um, because that would be helpful in, in, in uh, prognostication. Uh, but um, and the typical finding is that there is prolonged or absent F waves. Uh, these are pathognomonic, and you know they, are, they obviously reflect uh, damage or demyelination at the level of the spinal nerve roots. Um, however, you know we must keep in mind that early on in the course, these EMG nerve conduction studies may actually be normal. So typically, uh, our approach is that we don't get those EMG nerve conduction studies um, uh, the earliest we uh, during their ICU admission. Or the earliest we would get them would be two weeks after uh, uh, onset of their symptoms. Perfect. So we talked about uh, the clinical diagnosis, some of the ancillary tests that we might um, use. But like you said, based on clinical criteria, the history in the exam, we are more often going to make clinical therapeutic decisions. And uh, let's talk about treatment, Cameron. So you did mention a little bit in the introduction, but specifically for Guillain-Barre, what prompts you to say this patient needs to go to the ICU? Yeah, so patients, uh, um, like we mentioned, we talked about a little earlier, patients who are at risk for a respiratory compromise uh, and may need mandatory support, and that's about 20% of the patients, they are the ones uh, who should be going to um, the ICU. Uh, so when you're assessing these patients, we should be looking at, you know, a number of features, respiratory rate, are they using accessory muscles? Um, single breath count, uh, how's their cough, how's their uh, ability to clear their secretions, you know, any evidence of paradoxical breathing, um, you know, and of course we can do certain uh, bedside assessments of respiratory muscle uh, strength that can also help um, in, in determining, you know, uh, if these patients are more likely to develop uh, uh, respiratory uh, failure requiring mechanical ventilation. Uh, these include force vital capacities, negative inspiratory force, or maximum expiratory pressure. Um, in addition, patients who have um, significant bulbar dysfunction, like I said earlier, you know, impaired cough, inability to handle their secretions or clear their secretions, uh, high risk for aspiration. These are the patients who uh, should be monitored very carefully uh, in the ICU. And then uh, patients with significant uh, autonomic dysfunction because uh, that is a major contributor to mortality. Uh, these patients should be in the ICU. Perfect. So once we make a decision to come into the ICU, there's a couple of aspects that we're going to cover. One is specific treatment for the disease, and we'll go into that in a second. Second one is support with mechanical ventilation for the respiratory failure. And third is the autonomic dysfunction support. So let's start with treatment of Guillain-Barre per se. What are the current recommended treatments for Guillain-Barre? Yeah, so uh, <clears throat> in terms of, uh, you know, uh, therapies, uh, the uh, mainstay of therapy is uh, the um, immunomodulating uh, treatments, and these include uh, either uh, plasma exchange or plasmapheresis or uh, use of intravenous immunoglobulins. So these are two mainstays of, of treatment, and um, uh, it really, you know, uh, there's no data from randomized control trial that has shown that one is 
uh, uh, more effective uh, than the other. Um, and, uh, you know, what these treatments do is that they uh, reduce the um, duration of illness and also the severity of the maximum uh, disability that they may have, okay? Um, uh, and so, so those are the two mainstays of treatment. Um, and, you know, uh, IVIG, because it's uh, uh, easier to administer and also more widely available, has kind of become the treatment of choice uh, for Guillain-Barre syndrome. Um, the dose is two grams per kilogram, typically given over five days. Uh, for Plex, um, typically you do it anywhere from three to five sessions every other day. Um, uh, and that's kind of, you know, uh, standard uh, for um, uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome acute management. So in terms of the available evidence, they're comparable. And like you said, um, based on availability and maybe specific patient um, circumstances, you might choose one or the other. In your practice, Cameron, are you more likely to use IVIG? Yes. Uh, so um, our first choice, typically in most cases, almost all cases, I would say, is IVIG, yes. Okay. And obviously a shortage of IVIG, reported allergies, or worsening renal failure could be problems for IVIG. But other than that, like you said, it's easier to administer, does not require an invasive central line, and uh, it seems to be comparable in terms of results. My second question regarding IVIG is, is there any value of a second course of five in very severe cases? Yeah, so uh, a good question. And, you know, uh, the data... Um, is uh, limited, uh, you know, because there are patients as 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 many as forty percent of the patients who will really not improve in the first few weeks after initiating either Plex or IVIG. Uh, so, what do we do for these patients? Uh, and uh, sometimes we will give them a second dose of the same therapy. So, if they got IVIG, we'll wait a little bit and give them another dose. Or if they got Plex, we'll give them another plasmapheresis. Or sometimes we will switch to the other. Uh, uh, immunomodulating therapies, so uh, IVIG followed by Plex or vice versa. But there's really no data to show that any one of these approaches uh, actually uh, is is going to is going to improve outcomes. There is a clinical trial in progress that actually is looking at is a randomized study which is looking at the effect of administering a second dose of IVIG, and that trial is currently ongoing. So, you know, um, GBS trials are typically very hard recruitment, difficult to recruit patients and stuff. So, uh, but this trial, uh, we'll see uh, what the what the results are. Uh, but that's really um, the options available to us. Perfect. Uh, and Go ahead. In mind, that the reason um, some of these patients may not have responded or we think may have responded is that uh, maybe their weakness would have been even worse, you know, if we hadn't given them those those therapies in the first few weeks after uh, after the onset of symptoms. So, uh, so it's not like the therapy is not effective. It's just that their nadir would have been even worse. Yeah. I think that our scale sometimes for evaluating in terms of time is too short in the ICU and really – what the studies have shown is that long-term, right, 12 months later, six months later, the patients who were treated with either IVIG or plasmapheresis have a quicker recovery, quicker weaning from ventilator, and better outcomes long-term. But in our time frame, maybe they're still super weak, they're still on the ventilator, and we feel like we, we failed. 
And I think it's important for clinicians to understand what the nat natural progression is. These patients are not going to get immediately better after you use these treatments. Exactly. Absolutely. I mean, you know, because, you know, remember the plateau phase can last anywhere from days to weeks to months and usually weeks to months. So, so the time frame that we have these patients for in the ICU is just not long enough for us to be able to see a significant clinical benefit. Excellent. We talked a little bit about uh, corticosteroids before we started recording. And my understanding is that there's no data to support the use of corticosteroids in all comers of Guillain-Barre, and it's not recommended currently. However, you had mentioned that there might be a very specific group of patients in whom there might be some plausible mechanisms that need to be studied, and in some centers it might be considered. Could you expand on that, Cameron? Yes, yeah. So you're, you're absolutely right about, you know, that really multiple randomized trials have shown no clinical benefit for uh, corticosteroids in GBS. In fact, there is some uh, suggestion that they may actually uh, have an adverse effect on outcome. However, more recently, uh, there has been an association of G GBS described with some of the immunobiological agents, such as the, especially the immune checkpoint inhibitors, uh, where there is a, you know, biological plausibility that, uh, immunosuppression using steroids may actually improve uh, or uh, maybe clinically benefit beneficial for these patients in in con uh, with uh, concurrent IVIG or Plex therapy. Uh, so uh, what some of these uh, centers are recommending is that uh, in addition to IVIG or Plex, uh, we should concurrently use prednisone, um, and that may actually be um, uh, so. It's a very sub a very spe specific, very small subgroup of patients where the corticosteroids may actually be beneficial. And of course, uh, you have to uh, discontinue or stop the um, immunobiological agent as well, which was the you know sort of the purported trigger uh, for Guillain-Barré. <clears throat> Perfect. So we talked about initial treatment for Guillain-Barré. The second aspect that obviously is most, most relevant to us as intensivists is support for respiratory failure. So could you talk a little bit about the decision to intubate and uh, uh, how do you make that as a neurointensivist, a, a, a critical care physician? And uh, uh, also in that maybe mention the 20-30-40 rule that um, is often mentioned. Yeah, so, you know, um, like a lot of things in, in medicine and in, in the ICU, you know, um, uh, clinical judgment uh, is very important, you know, and, and of course, in addition to your clinical judgment, you also have to have some object, objective data to support your clinical decision making. So in these patients, you know, um, if these patients are at risk for respiratory failure. So if you, if you know, if, if in your clinical assessment, uh, they are tachypneic because these patients may actually have pretty significant uh, uh, or may have impending respiratory failure without significant dyspnea. So that should be keep kept in mind. So if they have use of accessory muscles, if they have nasal flaring, if they are having paradoxical breathing, if they are tachypneic but not dyspneic, okay, if they are um, not really able to handle their secretions well, uh, then these are patients that, you know, uh, in combination with certain other objective parameters, and you mentioned the 20, 30, 40 rule, where essentially, you know, it's being, uh, um, it's assessment uh, of the respiratory muscle strength, um, where if your vital capacity or force vital capacity is less than 20 cc's per, uh, per kg of ideal body weight, if your negative inspiratory force is uh, 
less than negative 30 and your maximal expiratory pressure is less than uh, 40, these patients are more likely to require um, intubation and mechanical ventilation. Uh, so the, you know, so the, uh, the decision to uh, initiate mechanical ventilatory support is based on a combination of all of these factors. Uh, and uh, a number of studies have looked at, you know, some early predictors, if there are any that we can identify and, um, and you know, um, that would predict the you know, uh, need for mechanical, so we can intervene early and intubate these patients. And they have sort of like uh, come up with similar uh, 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 clinical uh, criteria um, uh, for initiating mechanical ventilation. Um, so if these patients are, si are showing signs of respiratory distress, you know, uh, and that that's you know all of those things that I mentioned earlier, and if and of course remember that with with the with the objective parameters like 20, 30, 40, the trends in these numbers that are important, you know. Uh, so if their if their vital capacity is declining, if their NIFs and uh, maximum expiratory pressure numbers are are getting worse in combination with you know uh, the patient themselves not looking uh, uh, looking like they're tiring or they're fatiguing, these patients should, are uh, you know uh, are on the verge of uh, respiratory uh, are basically having impending respiratory failure and should be. Um, as supported mechanical ventilation. And as you mentioned, obviously, the, the, the guidelines of the 20, 30, 40, which is 20 centimeters um, of water per kg of forced um, vital capacity or less than 30 centimeters of water of um, <clears throat> inspiratory pressure or 40 centimeters of water of expiratory uh, pressure, those are guidelines. But if somebody has a very high and they dropped significantly in the, in, in the, in the six hours that you're checking them, that should be a, obviously a signal that you probably should intervene earlier rather than later. And one of the things that is often mentioned, but I think it's worth reviewing for our audience is that ABGs are notoriously unuseful because changes in hy hypoxemia or CO2 are usually very, very late and we would like to intervene much before that those occur. Yeah, exactly. If your exactly if your patient on the ABG is already getting hypoxemic and has early hypercapnia, they then they already have respiratory failure, because you know um, uh, because patients can have pretty significant respiratory muscle weakness, but the ABGs may look normal because they are compensating up, you know, um, uh, um, or trying to compensate. Uh, so ABGs are notoriously not sensitive. Uh, uh, that's a, uh, absolutely a very good point. Um, uh, also, you know, in terms of, um, you know, assessment of forced vital capacity, NIFs, and maximum expiratory pressure, there are certain caveats that should be kept in mind, um, and which is that patients who have significant facial muscle weakness, they may not be able to... Uh, <clears throat> make a good seal when you do these tests. And so you can have falsely low force vital capacities. Um, so like everything else, you know, um, these numbers should be interpre interpreted um, uh, in, in terms of uh, uh, appropriate clinical context. Uh, <clears throat> yep, absolutely. So once the patient's intubated, so before we go there, actually, could you mention the role or no role for non-invasive ventilation in Guillain-Barré syndrome? Yeah, so uh, very good question. Um, uh, non-invasive ventilation in, in, in Guillain-Barré uh, has is very limited literature on that. Most of it is very small case series, and in almost all of those cases where it was tried, 
the patients uh, just ended up getting emergently intubated. And, uh, and what they found also was that there was a quantifiable significant decline in their respiratory mechanics over a short period of time. Because Guillain-Barre syndrome is, you know, as we'll talk about, is very different from myasthenia. These patients can be relatively stable over a period of time, but then can actually decompensate fairly quickly. And, and so, you know, that's why non-invasive ventilation may not be uh, the best choice uh, for these patients, especially also if they have significant bulbar weakness where it can re increase the risk of aspiration because of uh, uh, their inability to handle their secretions. Um, uh, so the literature is limited and, uh, and it's currently, it's, it's not recommended uh, to use non-invasive ventilation uh, in most cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome. Perfect. Once they're intubated, Cameron, it, can you can you mention a little bit on weaning and uh, and tracheostomy, which I think is an important part of care for these patients? Yeah. So you know, um, obviously, once they're you know once they're on the ventilator, uh, you are in, you have initiated your immunomodulating therapy, including Plex and IBIG, uh, and then of course you are assessing these patients for any signs of clinical improvement, inclu including improvement in their respiratory muscle strength. Uh, and weaning, uh, you know, th there's some data, obviously you're following their force vital capacities and NIFs uh, while on the ventilator. Um, there's some data that once their force vital capacity improves by four ml per kilograms vital body weight from their pre-intubation uh, numbers, or if they have a NIF better than negative 50, more negative than negative 50, then they are more likely to uh, be successfully extubated. But remember that in most cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, uh, the mechanical ventilation is likely going to be fairly, um, fairly prolonged. And uh, and you know there are some uh, risk factors that have been identified uh, for prolonged mechanical ventilation. There's one study which showed that patients who are unable to lift their arm off the bed one week after being intubated and patients who have the exonal type of um, uh, uh, of the polyneuropathy based on electrodiagnostic or electrophysiologic uh, studies are likely going to need prolonged mechanical ventilation because the recovery time is going to be very, very long. And for these patients, early tracheostomy should be uh, considered or, or done. Excellent. So the last thing I wanted to talk about in terms of support for Guillain-Barre was uh, autonomic dysfunction, which can also, I think, be very um, severe and usually might prolong the stay in the ICU once they're, they're intubated or trached and maybe ready to go somewhere else. Could you talk about how we handle that? Yeah, so these patients can, you know, have uh, some of these, uh, up to 70% of these patients can have significant uh, dysautonomia or dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. And so these patients should be very careful, uh, you know, monitored very closely in the ICU. Their blood pressures can fluctuate a lot, and it can be very difficult to sort of uh, manage, even in a, in, in a critical care setting at times. Uh, these patients can develop heart blocks. These patients can develop uh, all types of atrial, especially, and also ventricular arrhythmias. Um, so, you know, um, uh, 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 
management would be sometimes you know these patients may require um, uh, temporary uh, or even permanent pacing um, so you know um, these are patients even with best possible critical care in the uh, you know uh, can still have an adverse uh, outcome uh, because of their dysautonomia uh, and for the most part the treatment really is symptomatic um, and uh, you know uh, um, you have to make sure that you don't miss anything structurally uh, so get an echocardiogram um, and uh, you should be doing EKGs regularly on these patients, um, and uh, um, and you know um, just good solid supportive critical care. Uh, but in spite of all of that, remember that you know uh, some of these patients, uh, a small subset may still have a bad outcome, reverse outcome, uh, because of the significant dysautonomia. And I think it's important also for intensivists to be aware in this acute phase uh, that that we probably should be avoiding long t- long long-acting cardio, um, cardiovascular therapy because we could get into trouble with these swings in the autonomic dysfunction? Uh, correct, yeah. Um, so uh, short-acting titratable agents uh, uh, would be the preferred choice for, for these patients because they can fluctuate from one extreme to the other fairly in a very, for, over a very fairly short span of time. Finally, um, obviously, the course of these patients may be prolonged, but I think it's important um, in Guillain-Barre especially, but also in many other neuro uh, acute pathologies to talk about prognosis. And uh, as severe as these patients uh, may be and as prolonged as some of their courses might be, overall, the prognosis is quite good. Could you comment on that, Cameron? Yeah, yeah, you know, um, uh, that's that's exactly uh, true because, you know, sometimes when we see these patients in the ICU and they're very, very sick, they have profound, uh, uh, you know, uh, neurological disability, and, you know, we kind of like um, think that how are these patients going to, you know, get better, you know, but if you look at outcomes over six months to a year after their acute phase, um, uh, you know, 60 to 80 percent of the patients are able to walk independently at six months and about anywhere between 85 to 90 percent of the patients by a year. Uh, Full recovery of motor strength uh, occurs in about, you know, 60 percent of the patients at about one year. So it takes time, you know. uh, you know, but of course, there is a subset that's going to have um, about 10% of the patients, up to 10% of the patients can have a, a prolonged course where they are ventilator dependent for months uh, and the recovery is um, delayed and incomplete in those cases. Um, the mortality is anywhere from uh, 3 to 5% within the first year, despite obviously uh, very good critical care. Uh, a lot of it is attributed to the significant dysautonomia that accompanies this condition. Um, and, uh, uh, and of course, these are the patients who are more likely to die, the, the patients who become chronically ventilator dependent uh, from a variety of causes, of course, uh, factors of pneumonia, DVTs, mucus plugging, uh, and so on and so forth, and, of course, autonomic dysfunction. Um, uh, patients who improve can have a worsening of their symptoms. Um, so relapses can happen. Uh, this what has been called as treatment-related fluctuations. And in these cases, you know, uh, about 5% of the cases, uh, overall uh, cases of GBS can have these relapses uh, as well, uh, which obviously, you know, if that does happen, uh, is treated the same way with either Plex or IVIG. 
<clears throat> Excellent. So let's move on to myasthenia gravis. And myasthenia obviously falls in the category of acute neuromuscular diseases that we might see in the ICU. Has some important differences with Guillain-Barre. But why don't we start just by telling us a little bit about the incidence and a little bit about the pathophysiology and perhaps the classification? Yeah, so, uh, so myasthenia gravis is uh, really the most common acquired disorder of uh, neuromuscular transmission. And essentially, the pathophysiology is that there's production of antibodies uh, or autoantibodies that bind to the components of the neuromuscular junction, the most common of which is the acetylcholine uh, uh, receptor. Uh, and uh, uh, what happens is that uh, this results in <clears throat> uh, uh, blocking of uh, the acetylcholine that is in the uh, synaptic cleft, uh, binding off that acetylcholine to the acetylcholine receptor. Um, in addition, these autoantibodies also they induce uh, complement mediated degradation of the acetylcholine receptors. There's decrease in the number of membrane folds in the po on the postsynaptic membrane, um, and also the synaptic cleft widens. Uh, so you have uh, decreased number of acetylcholine receptors as well, and also uh, widening of the cleft, and that interferes with neuromuscular transmission, and of course leads to progressive uh, muscle weakness. In terms of the incidence of uh, uh, myasthenia gravis, uh, it's a you know it's fairly low, um, anywhere from 0.3 to 2.8 per 100,000 uh, population, and the prevalence worldwide global prevalence of myasthenia gravis is 700,000 approximately. Uh, and of course, you know, uh, significant advances have been made in, in improving outcomes uh, in these patients. The mortality has declined significantly, and that's really because of uh, intensive care. Uh, so good critical care when these patients have a myasthenic crisis and uh, very effective um, uh, immunosuppressive therapies that are now available. Perfect. Tell me a little bit more about the diagnosis. And my understanding, Cameron, is that most patients that come to the ICU with myasthenia have a previous diagnosis of myasthenia. They have a myasthenic crisis, and we can talk about that. But once in a while, you might have a new presentation, and we have to make the diagnosis de novo. Yeah, so again, diagnosis uh, of myasthenia would be based on your clinical history, uh, your examination, uh, and um, uh, when you suspect it, uh, serological testing. Uh, so in terms of uh, serological testing, uh, you know, acetylcholine receptor antibodies, uh, classically uh, very, um, uh, very strong association, very highly sensitive uh, for diagnosis of myasthenia gravis. But other antibodies have also been um, described um, in these patients, and more and more antibodies are being um, uh, described now or discovered. So, so you know, um, so what we used to call seronegative myasthenia gravis, uh, essentially it's becoming a smaller proportion of patients who have myasthenia gravis. Uh, so musk antibodies, uh, lipoprotein-related protein, protein uh, uh, for antibodies, and agrin antibodies. These are some of the more common, uh, some of the more um, uh, more recently described antibodies that um, uh, that have been described now in patients with myasthenia gravis. What would be? Go ahead. Sorry. In terms of a clinical clinical diagnosis, what would be some of the, the other clues that you would uh, offer to our uh, listeners to 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 be attentive to? Yeah. So. Uh, 
uh, in terms of, uh, there, there are two basic clinical subtypes. One is the generalized myasthenia, where you have muscle weakness that involves your um, muscles of your limbs, uh, respiratory muscle, as well as ocular muscles. Uh, fatigability is a very important uh, uh, um, uh, 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 description uh, uh, in these patients, or where the symptoms, as the day progresses, they tend to get worse. Uh, so that's the uh, generalized myasthenia gravis. Patients who have uh, the other subtype, less common, ocular myasthenia, they typically have involvement of the um, extraocular muscles and the muscle of the eyelid. So these patients will present with ptosis and uh, an ophthalmoplegia or diplo diplopia. So those are the two clinical subtypes that have been described. Uh, and again, fatigability and exertion is, 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 is something that we always are asking these patients for. Um, uh, and these patients would classically say that as the day progresses, their symptoms tend to get worse. They, are, they feel much better in the morning. Uh, deep tendon reflexes are preserved in most cases. Uh, and, uh, and of course, you know, um, uh, to confirm the diagnosis, serological testing for, followed by repetitive nerve stimulation uh, that can be helpful. Single fiber EMG with repetitive nerve stimulation, which typically would show you a decremental action potential as the muscle uh, neuromuscular junction gets, uh, 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 muscles get fatigued because of impaired neuromuscular junction transmission. Excellent. And I think that if I'll share a story, Cameron, because this is one of my uh, best uh, patient stories of picking up a diagnosis by being attentive. But I think it applies to this patient admitted to the ICU with pneumonia, treated with levoquin, it got intubated. And uh, the only history he had is that he had been intubated before for previous infections in gentlemen in his 50s. And then somebody noticed that he had ptosis on the ventilator. And uh, an astute clinician, not to be named, uh, said, why don't we do an ice bag test? And yeah. uh, an ice bag was placed on the patient's eyelids. And lo and behold, the ptosis got better. And mm -hmm. uh, the idea being that the anticholinesterase activity, right, it, um, is impacted by, by temperature. And uh, that led to a suspicion of myasthenia and led to an eventual diagnosis of myasthenia. So sometimes these patients do come without a diagnosis. And by being observant of the physical exam, we might be able to, to figure it out. Definitely. You know, that's, that's a great story. And, uh, you know, again, uh, uh, a lot of the uh, an astute clinician at the bedside uh, asking the right questions and uh, and you know uh, doing a, a focused but at the same time you know uh, concise focused examination uh, can come up with a uh, with a diagnosis that can be confirmed by further testing. Absolutely. So we 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 talked about the diagnosis and uh, we also mentioned and I don't know if you want to maybe. Um, emphasize or, or, or redefine that, that a lot of patients that we see in the ICU come with myasthenic uh, crisis, right? What is a myasthenic mm -hmm. crisis? So myasthenic crisis is uh, it's a life-threatening uh, condition, uh, and uh, patients uh, uh, with myasthenia gravis, uh, up to a quarter of these patients at some point during their disease course will have a myasthenic crisis, and it's defined as respiratory muscle weakness due to myasthenia that is severe enough 
to necessitate uh, some form of uh, uh, ventilation, uh, either intubation, mechanical ventilation, or non-invasive ventilation, or uh, that delays their them from delays extubation following some sort of surgical procedure. So that is uh, a, a myasthenic crisis, and uh, <clears throat> you know. Also, these patients may have uh, uh, significant bulbar weakness um, that can often accompany the respiratory muscle weakness. And in some patients, that can be the more predominant feature. And of course, when you have bulbar dysfunction, uh, that can cause upper airway obstruction because the upper airways collapse, or it can cause severe um, uh, dysphagia, increased risk of aspiration, and again, leading to respiratory failure, hypoxemia, respiratory failure, needing uh, intubation and mechanical ventilation. Uh, uh, a number of triggers uh, have been identified that can precipitate uh, a myasthenic crisis, the most common being some sort of concurrent infection. Uh, other triggers include uh, any type of stress, such as a surgical procedure, uh, pregnancy and childbirth uh, have also been uh, described as a potential trigger. Uh, tapering of immunosuppressive medications. During that process, these patients can relapse and develop myasthenic crisis. Um, and it can just happen as part of the natural history of myasthenia gravis itself. Um, and uh, of course, we also, we talk, and, and I think we'll talk about that too later in the podcast, um, certain other triggers uh, that sh always should be kept in mind are medications that can increase uh, weakness um, in myasthenia. And, and there's a whole list of medications that should be either avoided or used cautiously in these patients. Perfect. So in terms of treatment, um, obviously, there's long-term treatment for myasthenia, which I think is out of the scope of intensive care. But um, what would be uh, some of the guidelines for people who are in the ICU in terms of a crisis or for other reasons? Yeah, so, um, you know, uh, treatment can be uh, – broad categories are – uh, symptomatic treatment, which would be your uh, uh, acetylcholinesterase, anticholinesterase agents, such as pyridostigmine. Uh, and then for myasthenic crisis, what you need is basically rapid immunomodulating treatments that includes either Plex or uh, IVIG. Um, uh, along with uh, chronic immunomodulating treatments, uh, which include your glucocorticoids, uh, as well as other immunosuppressive agents, the most common being uh, azathioprine, uh, cyclosporin, methotrexate, and then more recently, uh, rituximab. Uh, and then the other uh, biological agents that have been, uh, uh, there's more data emerging on, the, on some of these biological agents that may be helpful. But that again is more long-term chronic treatment. Um, and I know we'll, I guess we'll talk about a little bit about thymectomy, or thymectomy as well. But for the myasthenic crisis patient, really, it's uh, initiating the rapid immunomodulating uh, uh, treatments, either Plex or IVIG, uh, concurrently with um, glucocorticoids, high-dose prednisone. That's your uh, initial first-line therapy. And I think that's an important distinction, obviously, uh, with Guillain-Barre, that glucocorticoids do have a very important role in the myasthenic crisis. In addition, I think it's important to emphasize that usually we hold their chronic medications during a myasthenic crisis, and we will start them once we're thinking of weaning them off the ventilator, and obviously we would do that in conjunction with neurology. Cameron, could you comment on, is there any difference between IVIG and plasma exchange for myasthenia? So again, you know, like... Um, uh, uh, 
there's really uh, no difference in terms of efficacy uh, or clinical benefit uh, when you compare uh, plasma exchange uh, or IVIG. Uh, they both start to work uh, within a few days, uh, uh, and their benefit typically would last uh, for up to a few weeks. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> and again, it's 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 uh, uh, for IVIG the dose is fairly similar grams per kilogram over five days and for plex uh, similarly three to five sessions every other day um, and uh, choice obviously would depend upon availability ease of use cost um, uh, you know potential for adverse effects uh, which can uh, be seen with both uh, uh, and uh, so that's that's really but uh, I, I know uh, the choice is either uh, you can you can go with either or uh, IVIG or plex Perfect. And in that way, I mean, I guess it's similar to Guillain-Barre. So in terms of mechanical ventilation support, um, can you talk a little bit about same idea? We're monitoring these patients, looking for trends, looking at some, some data. Obviously, we would want to intervene earlier rather, rather than late. But there is one difference, I guess, that I want you to comment on, which is the role of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation in myasthenia. Yes. Uh, compared to Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, you know, BiPAP has shown significant uh, benefit uh, in these patients uh, uh, because, you know, the natural history of myasthenia is very different from Guillain-Barre syndrome, and that's really one of the main reasons why non-invasive ventilation can be beneficial because typically the need for mechanical uh, or, or ventilatory support in myasthenia is, in most cases, is expected to be short-term because the immunomodulating therapies, the rapid immunomodulating therapies, IVIG or PLEX, they start to have a beneficial effect within a few days. And so, uh, so you can kind of use non-invasive ventilation to bridge them to recovery. Okay. Uh, however, uh, uh, and there's some data on that, um, uh, especially from Mayo Clinic. There are like uh, more uh, multiple uh, decent-sized case series where you know, um, uh, BiPAP was actually used as a bridge to recovery um, uh, in patients with, uh, who are having a myasthenic crisis. Obviously, patients who have significant bulbar dysfunction, um, you know, where, you know, they are at high risk for aspiration, BiPAP is is, is not an option. Uh, so that's that's one population where you may not want to, you may want to avoid using BiPAP. Uh, in addition, there are other limitations of BiPAP use as well. You know, it's a very close-fitting mask, so patient comfort can be an issue. Uh, uh, patients are not able to really sleep that well. Uh, there may be leaks, you know, that can be associated with use of BiPAP and that can affect their ventilation, especially, uh, of course, gastric distension. Um, you know, um, it, it can be an issue as well. Um, however, you know, um, uh, in most cases, the patients are able to tolerate it well. Uh, one important point is that at the time of initiation of BiPAP, uh, if they already have become somewhat hypercapnic, then that is uh, associated with BiPAP failure, which obviously means that their respiratory failure has advanced to the point where they're starting to retain CO2. So that is one of the predictors for BiPAP failure. Uh, so again, if you want to use it, use it early. Excellent. And in terms of any other comments on mechanical ventilation, in terms of weaning or uh, even the role of tracheostomy in, in, in uh, myasthenia gravis patients? Yeah. So, you know, uh, weaning in these patients, again, um, 
should press, proceed in the same manner as other patients. What you're doing is you are uh, looking at, uh, you know, signs of improvement in muscle strength. Uh, you're also looking at signs of improvement in their, including their respiratory muscle strength. Uh, so you're assessing their uh, <clears throat> respiratory, looking at their respiratory parameters. They're assessing the strength of respiratory muscles using bedside spirometry, so force vital capacity. If the trends are improving, um, uh, NIF and uh, maximal expiratory pressures. Um, and uh, <clears throat> there's a clinical rule of thumb is that if the patient in, with myasthenia, uh, they can hold their head up off the bed, then they are more likely to be successfully uh, extubated. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> and again, you know, uh, pressure support trials uh, uh, every day to see how they're doing, uh, how their uh, rapid shallow breathing index looks. Um, you know, that's that's uh, that's important. Um, some people suggest that maybe you should give them very long pressure support trials, maybe as long as up to 24 hours to see if they're able to tolerate coming off the ventilator. Um, there's other people that have a different approach. Uh, they want to give patients sufficient time to recover or rest, I should say, uh, between these pressure support trials to prevent respiratory muscle fatigue. None of these approaches have been shown to be better or superior uh, uh, over the other. Uh, so I think it all depends on uh, clinician's experience and uh, individual patient characteristics, how you know, experienced the particular clinician is, and especially in uh, you know, managing patients with neuromuscular respiratory failure, especially myasthenic patients. Um, uh, so, uh, and, you know, there's also literature on non-invasive ventilation, non-invasive ventilation being used as a bridge to vent liberation as well. And there is some limited literature on that as well. Uh, so, you know, you can bridge them to vent liberation with non-invasive ventilation as well. Um, because in most cases, uh, the need for ventilatory uh, support in these patients is likely going to be uh, somewhat short term. And that's a definite difference with what we usually see in Guillain-Barre, and it's important to, to point out. You you did mention, Cameron, obviously, that there's a lot of triggers for myasthenic crisis, and they can exacerbate um, the neuromuscular weakness. One of them that's a big one is drugs. It, and, there are, and, I, and we'll include a link in the show notes to a more extensive list of drugs that we should be careful in patients with myasthenia. But could you comment on some of the drugs we should be avoiding in the ICU? Yeah, I mean, there's a you know there's a long list of uh, medications, uh, but some of the common ones uh, uh, would be you know uh, just uh, actually made a little list just uh, you know uh, uh, because I wanted to you can't really m mention all of them, but uh, some of the common ones beta blockers um, use uh, cautiously they may worsen uh, and that's a very commonly used medication. Uh, Fluoroquinolone antibiotics. Um, they um, they actually have a black spot black box warning uh, for uh, patients who have myasthenia gravis and uh, uh, try to avoid them in these patients. Uh, macrolide antibiotics again used very cautiously if at all. Uh, Procainamide is another medication that you should use with caution. Uh, statins uh, can also worsen uh, myasthenic symptoms and again use with caution. Uh, aminoglycoside antibiotics, um, again, used with caution. 
um, Botox, of course. Um, and so these are probably the more common um, medications that are used. Um, I mean, uh, less commonly, of course, immune checkpoint inhibitors. We kind of talked about that a little bit. And also remember that corticosteroids, when they're initiated in the acute setting for myasthenic crisis, they may actually, in the short term, make your symptoms worse before the patient gets better. And that's why concurrent use of IVIG or Plex um, uh, can actually sort of attenuate or ameliorate some of those worsening of some of that worsening of symptoms during the acute phase. <clears throat> Excellent. And there's a, Go ahead. There's a, you know, long list, but uh, you know, uh, more extensive list that we, you know, as uh, you, you already mentioned, that you'll put in the uh, show notes. Absolutely, and I think this is obviously where um, true multidisciplinary critical care shines, and having our pharmacy colleagues helping us with these um, uh, patients in this respect is going to be extremely important. Um, the last topic I wanted to ask you about before we close, and on myasthenia is. Obviously, there's an association with uh, thymomas that's very important. And in a lot of these patients, thymectomy is recommended. Uh, anything that you think the intensivist should know on this front? Yeah, so um, uh, the association with uh, thymomas uh, is very strong. And in patients who, with myasthenia gravis who have thymomas, uh, that the thymectomy should be performed, and uh, and it's not just removing the thymoma itself. You actually have to remove the whole whole thymus gland. In patients who have generalized myasthenia, uh, uh, but but uh, non thymomatous, okay, even in those patients, uh, thymectomy has been shown. Uh, to be clinically beneficial. So patients with generalized myasthenia who are acetylcholine receptor antibody positive, uh, even non-thymomatous patients, thymectomy is beneficial. Uh, in terms of uh, other variants, other subtypes of myasthenia like musk antibody or uh, lipoprotein, related protein 4 antibody positive or agarin antibody positive myasthenia gravis, uh, there's really uh, no benefit, documented benefit of uh, uh, thymectomy um, or it's uncertain in those cases. So it's not really recommended, at least as per the most recent guidelines. Perfect. So I think, uh, Cameron, we had a wonderful discussion of two, I think, fascinating um, disease processes that require ICU care on a regular basis, maybe not in great numbers, but I think we've all seen these patients and we'll see them again. So I really appreciate you sharing your expertise. You know the drill on critical matters. We like to close with a couple of questions that are unrelated to the clinical topic. So uh, would that be okay? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And Absolutely. thanks again for having me here. So the first question is about books. Are there any books that have influenced you significantly or books that you have gifted uh, often to other people? Uh, yeah, you know, lately, uh, I used to be an avid reader, but lately with kids and stuff, you know, sort of uh, um, haven't been able to keep up with that uh, as much. Uh, however, I did uh, recently or, you know, over the last year or so, uh, read this book, which, uh, you know, was well known, uh, but uh, when, um, it's by uh, Paul Kalaninti. It's called it's, uh, When Breath Becomes Air. Uh, it's very profound, uh, you know, uh, very easy reading, not very dense. Uh, it's a beautiful memoir, uh, you know, this uh, uh, neurosurgeon, uh, neuroscientist in training uh, who towards the end of his training period uh, developed stage four lung cancer. And um, so, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's 
somewhat um, uh, heartbreaking, but also at the same time, you know, um, uh, kind of uh, life affirming and, and beautiful in its own way of how this very, very <clears throat> highly skilled and a very highly driven individual is, uh, you know, coping with, uh, you know, sort of the end of his life, you know, in a way. And uh, just tells you that, you know, uh, people who are dying uh, have a lot to teach us uh, in life, you know, uh, and, and there's a lot to be learned uh, from how they are looking at their life. Uh, so, you know, I would uh, highly recommend that book. Uh, uh, you know, it also kind of like examines the relationship between uh, doctors and their patients and this, uh, you know, in particular uh, you know, this particular author, you know, being a physician himself and then becoming a patient and how that, uh, yeah, how that dynamic, you know, uh, an interaction, uh, go, you know, how that played out uh, is it, fascinating. Uh, you know, it you know, can be a little depressing, uh, but, you know, uh, because of obviously the nature of what, you know, the memoir itself, but, um, uh, but I thought that it was in a way, in its own way, very uplifting as well. Awesome. And we'll definitely put a link in the, in the show notes, and I, I, I do concur. I mean, this is a wonderful uh, read, I think, very powerful, like you said, and uh, very, very sobering because we never know what's around the corner, and I think that makes the present even more valuable. So thanks for sharing that, Cameron. Of course, yeah. The second question is, what do you believe to be true in medicine or in life that most other people don't believe or don't act as they believe? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh... I think that uh, uh, I guess the, uh, maybe uh, don't want to get too political, but maybe the power of forgiveness and reconciliation. Uh, I think that people underestimate it, you know, uh, and that you know some you know maybe qualities that uh, if there were more. Uh, prevalent uh uh it may actually make a better world well and i think it's not political i think it it might be political but it's also in families it's also mm -hmm. in friendships and yeah. i think you're you're right and how often we 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 we, we tell stories to ourselves that um, blind us from seeing the power of like you said of forgiveness of true forgiveness and reconciliation which ultimately i think is much more valuable for, for everybody. So I, I definitely can see how that is something that a lot of people don't behave like they believe in. And uh, mm -hmm. I think it's a, it's a great, it's a great, great answer. So to, to close Cameron, if there's anything that you want every listener to know, could be a quote, a fact, or just a departing thought. Uh, I mean, you know, like I'm always like uh, uh, as a physician, as you, you know, take care of patients on a daily basis and, you know, uh, deal with very complex uh, uh, medical problems and also uh, complex, a lot of times very complex social situations as well uh, tied to these patients. Uh, you just, uh, you know, sort of, I, I'm kind of learning more and more that uh, uh, medicine can be, or life in general can be very humbling. Uh, and, uh it, you may think that you know a lot, but especially the world that I live in, uh, acutely brain injured patients, our ability to be able to, um, you know, 
tell our patients and in most cases family members with any degree even close to it certainty what the eventual outcome is going to be uh it, it very very tough very very uh difficult and and very humbling you know so um it's like the more i practice the more i, I kind of I'm finding out that um, uh, I just don't know enough, you know, and uh, um, yeah, so, but, you know, that's, uh, that's something that's, you know, is, uh, uh, um, I guess, allows me to sort of uh, maybe learn more, introspect more, and, uh, and also stay grounded. Perfect. I think this is the right place to stop, Cameron. I appreciate you sharing your expertise and your time with, with our audience and look forward to having you back on the podcast. Thank you so much, Sergio. And uh, uh, thanks for having me here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound's transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.